Some of you are already on your way. Second Chronicles chapter 35 is where we are this evening. Our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, we're going to go through a couple of chapters this evening. And it's always best to have a Bible to follow along. There are men coming up the aisles right now. If you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands immediately. And uh, you can follow along and not only hear the word, but also be able to read it with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home and make it your own. In chapter 35, we come to a place here and uh, kind of interrupted last week or in terms of the narrative that is given to us related to a king by the name of Josiah who was one of the greatest kings that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. We remember that the northern kingdom of Israel never had one good king. They were all rotten and all ungodly. And for that reason, the northern kingdom of Israel went into bondage or into captivity to the Assyrians 120 years before the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah had eight kings who were called good kings who did what was right in the Lord. And the influence of those eight kings held off God's judgment from the southern kingdom of Judah for a period of 120 years. That was the influence of eight men uh, who followed God wholly and fully and being obedient to his call upon their life. It did make a difference. It didn't mean that the southern kingdom of Judah isn't ultimately going to fall prey and go into bondage uh, because they will, not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians. But it wasn't because of these kings. It was in spite of the influence of these kings. There's something very perverse about our flesh and uh, how we can rationalize things that the southern kingdom of Judah They were able for 120 years to know the history of the northern kingdom of Judah. They went into bondage. They were taken out of the land, taken into captivity by uh, the Assyrians. Everybody knew the reasons why, because they had abandoned God and they were engaged in idolatry and willful disobedience against the Lord. And yet, despite the fact that God was true to his promise, even to judgment, and God is always true to his word, whether it is the blessings that he attaches to obedience or the judgment of the chastening that he attaches to disobedience. He's always faithful to his word. And here are these people in the southern kingdom of Judah, God's people. And they're a long way from God, but they're the closest thing to God's people in the whole wide world at that time. And somehow in their mind, they think that sin will have a different outcome in their life than it did in somebody else. Isn't it amazing? You look, I mean, you look at just, you just got to get a little bit older. You got, just got to, you got to get the hoary head. That's called white hair. That's King James for going gray. Did you live long enough to go gray? And you see these same cycles. Isn't it interesting, not just on a spiritual level, but even in a, uh, on a secular kind of level. You think of how many people have just completely destroyed their lives with drugs. How many lives have just been completely turned upside down by being sexually immoral when God says not to. And I'm, t- I'm not trying to heap on condemnation on anyone, but you look at these, we just see the casualties in front of us everywhere, and yet another generation comes along 
and somehow convinces themselves that it will have a different outcome in their generation or in their individual life. And it doesn't. The beat just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So it's important to learn lessons from previous generations and apply those lessons to ourselves because sin will always have the same outcome as it relates to our lives as it does to anyone else's life. In the book of James, it talks about uh, not being deceived concerning sin. And one of the lies, sin, sin deceives, sin lies. And one of the biggest lies that sin uh, tells us is that sin will be different in our lives. We can handle it. It'll have a different outcome because we're special. There's no one quite like me in all of human history, and it'll have a different outcome for me. But James wrote and he said, no, no, here's how sin works. Sin never stops working in a nation or in a people or an individual until it ultimately brings forth death. The death of a person's relationship with God, first of all, and then so often it brings forth uh, the uh, physical death as well. And so Judah didn't learn the lesson that they were supposed to learn, but not because God didn't send prophets to them and godly kings in order to drive home the point. We do, I do want to say tonight also, praise the Lord for the grace of God. I'm as stupid as anybody in human history. I've been as dumb as anybody else. Thought sin could have a different outcome for me as anybody else. But we want to learn from the Bible. And so here is this Josiah, great, great king. He began his reign at eight years of age, we remember. Began to seek the Lord in earnest at the age of 16. And then at the age of 20, he purged the whole land of, of Judah of the public idolatry that was in the land. And then at the age of 26, he began the repairing of the temple. And in the course of that, the word of God was found. It was read to him, as we saw last week. He was horrified at the great gulf, the distance that existed between what the word of God declared should be the conduct of God's people and the life that the nation of Judah was living. And he realized judgment was very, very close. And uh, so he called the people together, made a covenant on his own behalf to follow the Lord fully, called upon the nation uh, to do the same, and then backed that up by uh, purging Jerusalem and Judah again of all idolatry. This time, not just in terms of like the public parks or public land or that kind of thing, but even into people's homes and, and into the private life. And then... In that same year, Josiah decided that he wanted to keep the Passover feast in uh, obedience to uh, the word of God and the commands of God. And so here he is. He discovers the word of God, gets busy right away obeying the word of God. The Jewish feast of Passover was and is a celebration of the Jews' deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. It was a time just to pull back and to remember that the miracle that God had done in delivering them from the overwhelming strength of Pharaoh and of Egypt, and that their life was a miracle as a people. They were a miraculous people. The only person that could be credited for their existence as the people of God was God himself and the miracle that he had done in delivering them from 
uh, the bondage of Egypt. And so it was a time to just pull back, celebrate how good God had been to them. He had put them in the land. They were a people in their own homeland. And a time just to kind of get quiet, just like we will with the Lord's Supper tonight. And remember the miracle that our lives are. Because what Christ has done, the Old Testament feast of Passover, celebrating the Jews' deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, is a type or a shadow or a picture of the greater deliverance that Jesus would accomplish in human history. And that is provide us with a means to be delivered from the stronger arm of sin to deliver us from the penalty of sin that our sin deserves, the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. And so this is what it was all about. And, and it was a time just to remember God's grace, to remember his faithfulness uh, to them. And Josiah probably recognized we need to go back to God. We need the, the nation to remember the miracle that we are, that this is God's land that he has put us in. And because at this point in time, the people are in large part apostate. They're living in very wicked lives apart from the Lord. And so he kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month, just as uh, the law of Moses required. And then he set the priests in their duties and he encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. So he organizes the priests, the Levites, everybody's got to get into their place and in order to uh, celebrate and pull this great, great feast off. And so he then said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people uh, Israel. So he tells them that they are to stop carrying the Ark of the Covenant around and put it back into the Holy of Holies of the temple. Now, and we've been going through the Old Testament here, and we realize that since the temple was built, uh, the Ark of the Covenant belonged in the Holy of Holies. They weren't supposed to be moving that around. So we think to ourselves, why in the world were they moving the Ark of the Covenant around so that Josiah said, now put it back into the place that it belongs? There are several uh, suggestions. Uh, the priests may have begun to carry it from place to place. Uh, rather than leaving it where the law of Moses declared that it should be, maybe just to protect it from the wickedness of the previous uh, kings of Judah, the wickedness of Manasseh, the wickedness of Ammon, and uh, so to keep it from being profaned or uh, mistreated, they might have removed it themselves. Manasseh himself, before his conversion, he might have uh, ordered it even to be removed from the temple. And uh, Josiah may, in fact, have ordered it to be removed from the Holy of Holies while the repairing of the temple was going on. But now they were to bring it back and to put it in its place. And he said, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your division. Writing the written uh, or following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. So let's get this place ship the way God revealed uh, to David uh, the, the organization of the priests and the Levites. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the fathers' houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the fathers' house. 
of the Levites. And so slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourself, uh, prepare them for your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And so he says, all right, we're going to do we're going to do the Passover. It's been a long time since the Passover had been done. And uh, uh, so. Uh, now, uh, everything said, all right, let's front and center and let's do it. And then Josiah gave the lay people. I don't know. You know, they talk about um, even today in the church, you've got um, regular people are called lay people. I don't understand it that much, the origin of it, but I see it here. And so it must evidently means the regular people that aren't the priests or the Levites. So for the regular people that weren't in holding these offices, he gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock for all, uh, all for Passover offerings from all who were present to the number of 30,000 to the number uh, uh, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. And so he's going to do this Passover and he's kind of doing it uh, very, very quickly. And so uh, Judah hadn't celebrated a Passover in a long time, and not everybody just had um, a lamb uh, laying around. It was a big deal to have a lamb in those days, and certainly a big deal to have enough lambs that you could take one and offer it uh, to the Lord or to be able to buy one. Sometimes if you were kind of in a poor circumstance, you'd spend the whole year saving toward that to be able to do that. Now the king is called for the celebrating of the Passover. Where are we going to get a lamb? And Josiah, just the sensitivity of his heart, he realizes that a lot of people are going to be able to pull this off. So out of his own flocks and out of his own wealth, he supplies those that would have struggled then to bring their own. In the Passover, you brought your own lamb and your, or your own goat to sacrifice uh, to the Lord. He realized not everyone would be able to pull that off on short order. And so he donated here 30,000 uh, of, of the goats and the lambs. And on top of that, 3,000 cattle, which would have been used for uh, burnt offerings and, and peace and thanksgiving offerings. And his leaders, they had the same heart. They give willingly to the people, uh, to the priests, to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, uh, Jehiel, rulers of the house of God. They gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 uh, from the flock and 300 cattle. And so they recognized the same need. They gave liberally. And then so did uh, Conaniah, his, uh, his brothers, uh, Shimeiah, uh, Nathaniel, uh, Hashabiah, and uh, Jael, uh, and Jezebad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites four Passover offerings, 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So just good Good men who looked and said, you know, we I couldn't enjoy this Passover the way that I want to enjoy it, knowing that anyone that wants to turn to God and obey God in this, uh, that someone might not have an animal to be able to do that with. And so the beautiful heart of many that were in the nation, not all of them, but many at that time. And so the service was prepared and the priests stood in their places, the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command, and they slaughtered the Passover offerings. And the priests then uh, sprinkled the blood with their hands uh, on the altar 
altar there while the Levites skinned the animals. Now, verse 11 is an interesting verse if you're like a vet uh, or you're an animal lover or something like that. Sometimes um, people who really love animals, uh, they struggle with the sacrificial uh, side of things in, in the Old Testament. And so here's this word, for instance, that is, is just unapologetically and unflinchingly used <clears throat> the word slaughtered, and they slaughtered the Passover offerings. Excuse me a moment. All of these sacrifices were a picture or a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. And in the keeping of the feast of the Passover, so many animals would be sacrificed. I don't know if you've ever been around where an animal has been butchered or watched that up close or from a distance. By the time you are uh, butchering and basically the place turned into kind of a slaughterhouse during these feasts, these men were doing all of this by hand. And I mean just the warmth of the blood, the smell of the blood, just blood everywhere, the slipperiness of it and all. And, and, it, and that's what it resembled, a slaughterhouse. And all of it a picture of the scene of Calvary, where the Bible says concerning Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices. When he hung upon that cross, that cross was completely covered in his blood and in his flesh. And the Bible says that if you were to look up at Jesus upon that cross, that his visage was marred more than any man. You couldn't recognize him for who he was. From head to toe, his body it was laid open by the scourgings and by the beatings, the brutality of man before he ever ended up being nailed to the cross. And, and so, there, uh, so it's a picture of what uh, God knew that Jew and Gentile would do to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he would send him into the world. And so there is, sure, you can have compassion upon animals and that kind of thing, but never stop there. Uh, then take it over into Christ and to realize this was not an animal. This was not a bull. This was not a goat. This was not a sheep. This was the Son of God who was treated in that way and humiliated and mutilated in that way and then crucified on the cross. So sometimes we look and we say we don't like the graphicness of it, but it takes the graphicness of this to make us stop and pull back and think about and appreciate the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf so that we could sit here tonight as saved and forgiven people, knowing that we are on our way to heaven and have a relationship with God. And then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. Uh, cattle were not used in the Passover, but they were used for burnt offerings. And also they roasted the pa Passover uh, offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But then the other holy offerings, um, uh, like the thank offering and the fellowship offerings, uh, they... Uh, took those and they boiled them in pots and cauldrons and in pans and they divided them quickly among all of the lay people. So some of the sacrifices were uh, made to God 
and he received the entirety of the animal. That was his. The burnt offering was like that. But other sacrifices like the Passover lamb and then some of the other offerings, you would offer the animal to the Lord and then a portion would be given to God and then a portion would be returned to the family. Uh, and it, it would have been on the braze, it would have been on the altar, so it was cooked. It would then be returned to the family. The family would then go to their place and partake of the animal. And what it symbolized in the Hebrew mind was that they were sitting down and eating a meal with God, which is very, very significant in the Hebrew culture. Because to eat a meal in the Jewish mindset, certainly of that day, to eat a meal with somebody else was to become one with that person because the same lamb or the same bull or the same cattle that I am eating and going is going into my body. God has received that as well. And so there's a communion that's taking place as well as everybody else, uh, all of the rest of the family that's eating. And so. It symbolized, and God wanted it uh, them to realize that, that he is involved in this Passover. He is involved in these other offerings. He is enjoying it. He is participating in it. And what he loves is the fellowship of his people. And so it was a way of God just communicating that he is being active and participating in the feast. And we want God active and participating in anything that we're involved in. That's certainly uh, our prayer for this church. And so uh, this was given to the lay people. And then afterwards, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, they're very busy and offering the burnt offerings and the fat all the way until night. And therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves again. The portion of it was eaten by the worshiper, uh, the offerer. And so the Levites prepared portions for themselves also for the priests so they could participate in the service, in the imagery, in the fellowship with God. They did the same with the singers. And so this makes this um, Passover a little bit unique to others. We read about in the scriptures and that Josiah wanted a lot of worship music going on at this. So there were a lot of singers, the sons of Asaph. Uh, that was choir number one in those days. They were in their places uh, with the worship music going on. According to the command of David, Asaph, uh, Heman, and uh, Jedithan, the king's seer, also the gatekeepers, they were all in their place. And so don't overlook the deacons. And uh, so they didn't have to leave their portion because the Levites brought the portions of the sacrifices that belonged to them so that they could eat as well. And so all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present, they kept the feast, they kept the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. There had been no Passover sent, uh, kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel. And so we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years uh, before that Samuel had uh, been a part of, <clears throat> of Jewish history long before uh, had, had gone on <clears throat> to be with the Lord. And uh, so this feast exceeded all of those other feasts of Passover as they were practiced. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So there's something about this that was especially pleasing 
to God. He doesn't elaborate why, but there's something about this Passover that was a great blessing to him. And in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, 26 years old, this Passover was kept. So here he is with these kind of convictions at 26 years of age to lead the nation that we're going to uh, celebrate this Passover. Wonderful to see that kind of conviction, godly conviction in younger men and women. And then we move on to the record of Josiah's death. After all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, he came up to fight against uh, uh, Karshemesh by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. So there's a lot of political intrigue that was going on in those days. Uh, Assyria was uh, declining as a world uh, uh, power in that part of the world at this time. Babylon was flexing its muscles and was about to overthrow the Assyrian uh, Empire. And so Egypt looked to Assyria. They felt that Babylon was a threat to the stability of the region. So they are coming to the aid of the Assyrians. Apparently, they decided that they were going to take their army right through the heart of Judah in order to enter into battle with the Assyrians. And, uh, and uh, Josiah sees all of this happening, and he is, for whatever reason, uh, more content to have Babylon rise to power than to have Assyria and, and Egypt maintain their power, which he considered to be the greater threat to Judah. And so he goes out uh, to fight against uh, Pharaoh Necho as he, is, as he is doing all of this. And as he, as he went out to fight against them, and remember, at this time, Josh, Josiah is a great king, but Judah's military is a very small military. It's a shell of its former self under David and under Solomon and, and even later in Judah's history. So they are taking on one of the great armies of the world at that time and taking on Egypt. It wasn't a good move on the natural level in terms of physically, but it wasn't a good move uh, on all levels, as we'll see in a moment. But uh, he sent messengers, uh, Pharaoh did, back to Josiah as they're trying to intercept him for battle. And he said to him, what do I have to do with you, king of Judah? What, is, what business is this of yours that you want to come out to battle against me? I haven't come out against you. This isn't an attack on you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. So Pharaoh Necho says, this is none of your business. You're meddling in something that is none of your business, and you're going to get hurt if you stay in this. And Pharaoh Necho claimed to have the, the guidance of the God of the Bible in doing what it was that he, he was doing. Well, apparently Josiah didn't feel that that was possible that uh, this king could hear from God or that God would speak to him. And so uh, Josiah didn't heed this rebuke and, and he wouldn't turn his face uh, from Necho, but he disguised himself so that he himself could enter into the battle. Uh, why do these, these guys just love to jump into the fight? And uh, so he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. And so Necho was speaking on God's behalf. And one of the sad things about this is that Josiah 
um, is, is this occurs. There's no mention of him taking this to prayer at all. Now, uh, there are two of the good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah who fell prey to the same thing. I think it was Amaziah and also Josiah here, where they stuck their nose into something that wasn't their business, and they ended up dying as a result of it. This wasn't a good time for a good king to die, because only bad kings are going to follow him after this, and the nation really kind of goes off of the cliff, because though Josiah had a great relationship with God, the people as a whole, they didn't share his relationship with God. They basically went through the motions because he was the king, and that's how you held onto your pension or how you held onto your power and your position and all of these things, and we'll just outweigh uh, this guy, and surely another evil king will follow him. And so this was kind of what was going on. And so Josiah, he sticks his nose in, into uh, what wasn't his business. And, uh, but he, he does it under a different uh, motive than Amaziah. Uh, Amaziah did it uh, out of his pride and his arrogance. Josiah enters, gets himself involved in something that's none of his business out of a misdirected uh, zeal. And zeal is an important thing for the child of God to have. And I just, you know, we need more and more and more and more Christians who have a great, great zeal for God. But if, when a person has a great zeal for God, it's important that that zeal not get misdirected or misguided or drawn into something that is not constructive. And that's what he does here. So those of you who know, you know yourself. You're zealots. You're zealots in the body of Christ. And that's a great thing. I wouldn't change not one of you related to that. But to realize you have to guard your zeal very, very carefully. And one of the things you have to be careful about your zeal is to not stick it into every affair that's going on in the world. This war had nothing to do with Josiah. His zeal should have been directed toward his own nation, his own ministry, the things of God. And yet that's the thing about a misdirected zeal. You got zeal because it's in you. You you just start to express it out in all directions until you get pulled into something that ends up, you end up getting killed doing it. The one, the single greatest safeguard for zealous Christians, zealous people of God in, in keeping zeal properly directed is the very area that he failed, and that's the failure of prayer. If you are a zealot for the things of God, and God has made you that way, there is fire in your bones concerning the things of God. The one thing you must never, ever forsake in your Christian life is a prayer life. A prayer life that allows God to direct your zeal so to be profitable for him and to fear expressing that zeal anywhere that it isn't directed by God. But that's what he does. He gets into the battle. And so he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah and the king then said to his servants, take me away for I am severely wounded. He knew this was trouble, and his servants therefore took him out of the chariot. They put him in a second chariot that he had. They brought him to Jerusalem, and so he died. 
And he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. There was a genuine uh, uh, lamentation, mourning at his death. Even Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah the prophet that's spoken of here. He also lamented over the death of Josiah as something to have a godly man like Jeremiah uh, lament over your death. That's a that's a good sign when godly people are sorrowed by a death in that way. And so he lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all of the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. So apparently these lamentations were put to song and sung with bagpipes. And so they made it a custom in Israel. And indeed, they they are written in the laments. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last. Indeed, uh, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. So that brings an end of the final good king of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And at this particular point, they're just going to race through the final three or four kings. And as we read through this next chapter, it's just like boom, 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 boom. Uh, one bad king after another as they're just racing toward the cliff for the nation to drive uh, off of it. At the death of Josiah, Judah had only about 20 more years to run before they would be conquered by the Babylonians. And then the people of the land, they took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, they made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. And Jehoiahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. Uh, so these reigns are going to get very, very short. Anytime you've got instability, and a, and a nation is beginning to break down quickly. You see a lot of turnover of leadership. That's true of anything, a business, sometimes even a church and all. And, and so uh, he reigns three months in Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And so uh, here is uh, Pharaoh Necho. He defeats Josiah in that battle. And so, in essence, he makes Judah at this point kind of a satellite nation to Egypt. Uh, the people make Jehoiahaz the king. He meets with Jehoiahaz. He doesn't think Jehoiahaz is pro-Egypt enough. And so he deposes him and then, and then puts a tax upon the land, basically to communicate that you are not a sovereign people anymore and uh, that you are ruled by us. That was, more, that was the bigger thing that was communicated even beyond uh, the money that was, uh, that was uh, uh, charged of them. And then the king of Egypt, he made Jehoiahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem. And then he changed his name to Jehoiakim, as if there aren't enough names in this chapter. We've got uh, the king feels a need to rename somebody uh, in all of this. And so he he renames him uh, Jehoiakim, which means established by the Lord. And so apparently Pharaoh Necho, he recognized that Yahweh, the Lord, uh, ruled in Egypt. And again, the renaming of a king was another way of Pharaoh Necho uh, displaying his sovereignty or his power 
over the nation and over the new uh, king. And so he uh, renamed him his name Jehoiakim. And then Necho took Jehoiahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt where he later died. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just like, man. Anybody thinking in there? I mean, how can you just keep doing evil? I mean, everything is literally collapsing in Judah. And nobody wants to go another way. I mean, they've just gone way past the, uh, the tilting point. You imagine, here's a people, they, they know that their love of sin, their disobedience to the Lord has produced the, the very fragile society that they have, the dangers that, they're, that, that, that are all around them, and they won't let the sin go. They won't repent. They'd rather be destroyed than to repent of their sin. Mm, it's terrible. Uh, someday we might even see something like that with our own eyes in the world. But so he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he came up against him. And so now we see Babylon mentioned here for the first time. They now, between verses 5 and 6, have become the dominant world power, replacing Assyria, even having conquered Assyria's capital by this time. And so the king of Babylon then comes up against him. Because they've been allied with the Egyptians to this point, they bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon, and he put them in his temple at Babylon. Now, the Babylonians had a little different um, world-conquering philosophy than the Assyrians did. The Assyrians, when they would conquer a nation, they would simply displace the, na the native population. They would pack them all up, virtually all of them, ship them to another part of the Assyrian Empire, and then bring a foreign population into the newly conquered land. It kept everything destabilized, and it was easier, they felt, to control the empire as a result. The Babylonians didn't necessarily do that, and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar did not want to do that with Judah initially. So they, they followed more the model of the Egyptians who would conquer a land, put in a king who was sympathetic to them, and then let the nation continue to be prosperous so they could then tax it and, and draw wealth off of it. And so it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's plan uh, to destroy uh, Judah at all. And so at first he comes in, he, he overthrows the existing leadership that was he viewed loyal to Egypt at the time, and he takes some of the wealth away, but he's not interested in completely destroying the nation. But Israel, Jerusalem, is going to rebel against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is the, the greatest military in the world at the time, greatest empire in the world at the time. They're going to rebel against uh, uh, Babylon three times and force Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jerusalem three times. By the time he conquers him the third time, he says, uh, in essence, very uh, loosely, 
uh, forget the Egyptian model with Judah. I'm going to use the Assyrian model. And he just strips all of the people and all of the wealth out of the land, destroys the land, because he, in essence, said, you forced me to conquer you three times. I'll not, I won't leave anything left here to have to come back and conquer a fourth time. They really upset Nebuchadnezzar, and he wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to upset. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and uh, what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the books, the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, First and Second Kings. And then Jehoiachin, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, If they were your grandkids, you couldn't remember those three names and keep them separate. So then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. He was eight years old, better 18 years old, when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And at the turn of the year, uh, at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him, took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over. Judah and uh, and Jerusalem. And so here in all of this, it is interesting to note as um, in the first conquest uh, of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, he did take away a few people from Judah. He took away Daniel, Daniel's uh, uh, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He he did. He basically went and he took it all as many of the smart people that he could take out. He, he decided to do a brain drain on Judah, take all of them. And why have them working for Judah when I can move them over here and they can maybe start Apple or Google and Babylon and we can make a bunch of money off of it. So they just pulled all of that. By the time he gets done, he's not just stopping with these kind of guys, but he, he grabs uh, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, uh, the iron workers, anyone that had any talent at all. He stripped them out of the land and brought them to Babylon uh, to further advance uh, that that kingdom. And so Zedekiah, we finally got a Z, got out of the J's. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And so Zedekiah, you go into Jeremiah and you read about him and he was just a particularly despicable king. A very um, uh, Jeremiah's life was continually in danger for the full 11 years of this man's reign. He killed other prophets, only uh, God's hand to keep Jeremiah's voice uh, uh, around that kept him alive. Um, in contrast to his kind of great uh, uh, in contrast to his father, um, when the word of God was brought to him, a message from the Lord uh, by Jeremiah to this king. You remember, he's the one that took it and cut it up with a knife and threw it into the fire as if that changes anything. The Bible says heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never pass away. You burn all the Bibles you want. I change the voice of God. I change what he's going to do. He wrote it down. He promised he's going to do it. He's going to keep his word. Always going to keep his word. And so here he thinks he can disrespect God in this way and it's going to make some kind of a difference. And 
And so his treatment of the prophets, his treatment of the things of the Lord, terrible, terrible. And God was warning and warning and warning, and he was unwilling to listen. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear uh, an oath by God, uh, an oath of loyalty. But he then stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart against uh, turning to the Lord God of Israel. And moreover, all the leaders of the priests. So here we have the spiritual leaders of the nation at that time and the people. They transgressed. They just deliberately sinned more and more. That was the condition of of the land all the way to the top in the religious uh, 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 sector of things, according to all of the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house uh, of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Ezekiel, which we'll get to someday. But in the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel was uh, his ministry was to the children of Israel who had been displaced and were now then living in captivity in Babylon. And, and the Lord gave him a vision in which in that vision he was transported to Jerusalem during these final days of before the conquest of, uh, 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 conquest of, of Judah here. And, and he takes Ezekiel and he brings him into the temple, down into the inner chambers to allow Ezekiel to see what the priests were worshiping and what their wives were worshiping and all of the idolatry and the wickedness and the defilement of it. And out in the open, they gave the appearance of being uh, one thing. And then in the secret of, of their life, they were involved in uh, very, very defiling uh, idolatry and and so this is what was this is the placement of Ezekiel in, in that section of it and the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings uh, to them by his messengers God just kept warning them all the way through this it wasn't a case of like um, you know that he just told them once and they didn't heed and uh, and and then he, he went silent on them. The Lord sent warnings to them by his messengers. He had them rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. And so the Lord is just speaking to them over and over and over and over again uh, to try and to get them to turn around and to repent. But they wouldn't listen. Let me tell you, give you some of the names that God used. This is instruments of warning. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and others. And they just wouldn't listen, not to anyone that God sent to them. And so uh, their response to the warnings, they mocked the messengers of God. Any of you like to be mocked? Just a quick show of hands. Oh, it's another new day. I hope I get mocked. Uh, as if we don't like it. It... Uh, can put you in the flesh as fast as anything, can it? So they mocked the messengers of God. They despised God's word and they scoffed at his prophets. This was the treatment of God's voice and of God, the hands of the uh, leaders at this time, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. If you won't listen to God's warnings, then the only thing that can happen then is judgment. And therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans 
who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. And he had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And so the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were an instrument of God's judgment against his people. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his leaders, all of these he took to Babylon. And then he burned the house of God down. Uh, the temple broke down the wall of Jerusalem, uh, which was a, a, a uh, you know, a, a means of, of self-defense and basically saying, listen, you, you pull anything on us again. I don't want to hit a wall to overtake you again. So he destroys all of the defense. He burned all of the palaces with fire and he destroyed all of its precious uh, possessions. And so he just burnt everything down to the ground. That's interesting as we've been reading all the way through up to this point, reading about how. Um, the, the excitement for the building of the temple, God providing the artisans and the materials for it to be built, the great celebrations that occurred in the dedication of the temple, all of the great events that occurred uh, historically at that place. And yet God reaches a point here where he allows the Gentile nation to come into Jerusalem and burn the whole thing down to the ground. Because independent of the worship and the obedience of his people, the temple meant nothing to God. It was a building. The reason the temple was something to God was because, and the only way that it was something is when it was coupled with the obedience and the sincerity, the worshiping in spirit and in truth at that place. But once nothing was happening, there was no disobedience. There was no obedience in those that were worshiping there. The worship was all hypocritical. The Lord looked at it and said, the temple doesn't mean anything to me at all. And he allowed it to be destroyed. It's interesting, again, in the book of Ezekiel, when we get there, that prior to the destruction of that temple, Ezekiel saw the Lord, the Holy Spirit, lifting off of the temple, departing Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives and leaving. And so the Lord took his presence out of Jerusalem and out of the temple ahead of time without without obedience and without that worship in spirit and in truth, the building as magnificent as was, as much of a history as was there and all, it meant nothing to the Lord. It could just be burnt to the ground, and so he allowed it to be so. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. Those that survived the battle, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom uh, of Persia. And it's fascinating because... Uh, the children of Israel went into Babylonian captivity uh, supremely because of their idolatry. They were just worshiping all of the false gods of the whole, all the world around them. So God has a cure for that. <laughs> God basically said to his people, you like idols? You like worshiping all this stuff instead of worshiping me? All right. I'll send you to Babylon. The land of idols and idolatry. I'll give you idols to the coming out of your nose. 
I will surround you with idolatry until you are sick of idolatry, until the day comes in which you long for the opportunity to worship me once again. And the interesting thing about the Babylonian captivity, for all the problems of the Jews, is the Babylonian captivity did cure the Jews of idolatry. Historically, they would never go back into that again. They would have other problems and stumble over other things, but never idolatry. It's interesting, the same thing works so often on a personal level in our lives, too, where we can have a relationship with God and then we begin to distance ourselves from God because we have a love of a particular sin, some idol in this world. And so God warns and he 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 warns and we don't listen. We scoff. We despise the warning, we harden our heart to the warning and all. And then God just one day says, all right, you like that sin? I'll give it to you in spades. I'll let you go down into that world and taste it until it makes you so sick that you cry out for the opportunity to worship me and to serve me for the rest of your life. And so for so many lives, that's the testimony. And it purges of that love of that sin. And it gives us an appreciation to know God and to obey him for the rest of our lives. And all of this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The law of Moses had a commandment to the children of Israel that every seventh year the land was to be dormant. They were not to uh, produce anything on it agriculturally. It was just to be fallow. And God said, I'll give you double what you're going to need in the sixth year so that you have all the food that you need. It won't be an issue of food. It'll be an issue of obedience. And so every seventh year, don't plant anything. The land is mine. What grows on it is mine. Leave it alone. And what was that, that was intended to communicate to the children of Israel was to remind them every seven years, this land does not belong to you. This land belongs to me. And right from the beginning, 490 years earlier from this point, they simply disregarded this command. There's no record that they ever kept that command. So they just simply disregarded that command. And the seventh year, they figured, all right, we're making so much money the six years. Why would we not make more money on the seventh year? And so they planted and they made the money, all of the covetousness, all of this kind of thing. They ended up losing everything as a result of it because the issue was the obedience to the command. It wasn't the command so much, but would they be obedient to the command? And realize it was teaching them this belongs to God and you're just a renter here. You're just someone that God has given this to as a stewardship. And they didn't and they disobeyed that commandment for 490 years. So the land was owed 70 years of rest. And so God, who knows how to knock out two or three birds with one stone, uh, goes and and handles this as well. So. Seventy years of rest in the land was owed, and the Babylonian captivity, which occurred for 70 years, allowed that to happen. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation 
uh, throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, uh, the Lord God of heaven has given to me. He has commanded me to build him a house, a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among uh, you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so between verse 21 and 22, there's a gap of 70 years. Uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, followed uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, would follow and become the next great world ruling empire after the Babylonians. And when uh, uh, Cyrus came into power, he was moved by God to then issue the decree for the Jews to return back to the land and to rebuild the temple, which is the introduction for the next book in, in the historical account. And that is the book of Ezra, which we'll get to next time. So if the men will come forward so we can serve the Lord's Supper and the worship team would come forward, that would be uh, great. A couple of things to think about tonight as we consider the elements, the bread, a symbol of Jesus's body and the cup, a symbol uh, of his blood. Uh, the um, in going through these historical books and we were largely through them, the prophets will be a recap of this a little bit. But we just see the same um, uh, uh, repetition over and over and over again. God blessed these people. They gave themselves to disobedience. He had to judge them. And just this cycle that was just this constant mess. You know, what amazes me about it is the amount of space in the Bible that God commits to allowing us just to read page after page after page until sometimes you can just think, I mean, OK, OK, I get it. But apparently it needs to be driven home that way. And so as we finish now the book of Second Chronicles with that lesson repeated over and over and over again. And as we pass the cracker, a symbol of Jesus's body, our prayer is that if there's anything in our lives, any sin that's in our life, any attitude that is in our life that is unworthy of Christ and the sacrifice that he made to provide us with an opportunity to live an abundant life, life more abundantly is how he put it, that we would just turn away from that. We're the same, we're the same uh, like all of these people in the Old Testament, same descendants of Adam and Eve. We can read through this week after week after week after week and still hold on to what is working to destroy us. And the Bible says that the partaking of the Lord's Supper is a time for self-examination to just stop and to consider the sacrifice that Jesus paid not only for us to be a forgiven people, but also to be a holy people and to be able to stop and say, Lord, I've heard your voice, just like the prophets of old. Your Holy Spirit has spoken to me about this area of life. It is defiling in my life as a follower of you. It's unworthy of the sacrifice of Christ. And I choose to repent of that tonight. And wherever that might be present in any of our lives, I don't say that it's universal, but wherever it might be present under the weight of the word of God, let's just repent of any sin that dishonors him and lay our lives down before him as a living sacrifice.